Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. In the days since fashion icon Andre Leon Talley passed away, tributes to the trailblazing editor of Vogue describe him as larger than life. Indeed, he was a towering figure, both in stature as well as influence. He had a marvelous sense of humor, an opulent personal style, a profound intellect, and he brought a scholarly perspective and depth to his work. Those qualities are captured on screen in The Gospel According to Andre, a documentary by Kate Novak. Later this hour, we'll listen back to my conversation with the director, recorded in 2018 after the film's release. First, an appreciation of Andre Leontali from a notable Atlantan, Gail O'Neill, writer and editor-at-large of Arts ATL. Gail, welcome back to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure to be here. And I'm so happy that you led with Andre's scholarly bona fides, because he was such a larger-than-life character, and it feels surreal to be talking about Andre in the past, because his life force remains so vivid. But He was so exuberant and so over the top and in some ways like a jester that that could subsume his reputation as a scholar, as an academic, as a historian, as a cinephile, as someone who was so cultured and so elegant and so knowledgeable about the history of fashion that I'm just really, really happy you pointed out his scholastic achievements. Well, I think it's part of what made him great and was essential to him. Gail, I thought of you immediately when I heard that Andre Leontali passed away because, like you, he loved beauty in all forms, a flower, a gesture, as he said, and because you also were associated with Vogue. Some of our listeners and your readers may not know of your successful career in fashion, which is another reason we're fortunate to have you as a guest for this topic. 
Did your paths ever cross? Yes, Andre and I overlapped at exactly the same time. He started his career in fashion in New York in 1983, and I started modeling in 1985. So I would see him in the front row at collections in Paris and Milan and New York when I was walking the runways for designers. And Andre was the one, you know how in the black church lowest people are not quiet about their response to what they're seeing and hearing. I love it. There's exuberance and there's applause. That is not really permitted uh, on the catwalks in, in, in all of these fashion capitals. It's considered inappropriate. But Andre didn't mind being inappropriate. If he saw something he loved, he would explode. And so you were always aware of his presence in the room. However, I was very, very shy. I'm still, I'm still a fundamentally shy person. And so he and I never clicked on a personal level. I wasn't hanging out at night. I wasn't going to La Coupole in Paris or Studio 54. Well, it was post-Studio 54 era. But Andre had a full social life and a very big social circle that I was not a part of. I was just working by day going to bed at night, waking up early and starting over the next day. So we overlapped. I was well aware of his reputation. We knew one another, but I, I couldn't describe us as intimates or close friends. Oh, I understand you did have a special lunch with him in Atlanta. Yes, he came to Atlanta about five years ago. I would say Paula Wallace, the president of SCAD, was responsible for bringing Andre into Georgia, first at Savannah, the Savannah College of Art and Design, as a curator, as a mentor, as somebody to give master classes to her students. And then he made his way to Atlanta through SCAD Fash when his little black dress exhibition came to the museum, as well as the first post um, after Oscar de la Renta passed away. Andre was the first person to organize a show around Oscar's collections. And this was all because of Paula Wallace's seeing his scholarly input and what he had to contribute and having him come to Atlanta. So I'm sure he was in town for one of those SCAD related events. And I have girlfriends who are in the ladies who lunch bunch, again, not my crew, but <laughs> they were kind enough to invite me. And we all sat with Andre, a group of maybe five women and Andre, and he just delighted us. You know, he always was holding court. Andre Leontali said, I don't live for fashion. I live for beauty and style. Fashion is fleeting. Style remains. But his indelible mark was in the area of fashion. What made his contributions extraordinary? I think because he felt it on a cellular level, Lois. Fashion to Andre was, he described it as a sanctuary. Andre was born in Durham, North Carolina during the Jim Crow era. And it was a very harsh contrast to the loving home environment he had with his grandmother who raised him in Durham. So he describes being a teenager going to the campus of Duke University where his grandmother worked as a washerwoman. And he describes walking to the campus once a month to buy his Vogue magazine from the magazine shop and having stones thrown at him. And Andre was very gentle as a young boy. He wasn't one to fight. And of course it could have cost him his life back in that time in that era. So he was not one to stand up for himself and fight, but just to quietly go about what he wanted to do. And all he wanted was to seek beauty. And he described fashion and the pages of Vogue as a sanctuary. He even described fashion shows, attending fashion shows. He likened it to going to church every Sunday with his grandmother, again, describing it as a sanctuary. So fashion for Andre was an escape 
from the harsher realities of the American South in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, a place where there was refinement, elegance, there were manners, there were rules of comportment, and everyone followed those rules, and it was extremely aspirational. It lit up his imagination. Yeah. Yeah, and it reveals so much about him, seeing the connections he made as young as a 12-year-old boy in reading Vogue and as an escape from reality. You mentioned those connections to culture and poetry, music, beauty, and style for others who might simply have seen fashion on the pages of Vogue. I love that you brought up his grandmother and his growing up in Durham during a very difficult time for African Americans. He described his grandmother as aristocratic in the highest sense of the word, and indeed attending church with her on Sundays provided his first encounter with what seemed to him a fashion show, ladies wearing their best dresses and hats, men in suits and ties. What do you think of his assimilating those impressions as a young boy? I think it's important for your young listeners to understand the context of the time, Lois. In Durham, North Carolina in the 1950s, it would be considered offensive among some white people to see a black person dressed in their Sunday best. There was a hierarchy that told black people you had to be inferior to your white counterparts in dress, in comportment, in intellect, in aspirations, in every aspect of your life. There was just a, a lid that was kept on you. And so for Andre to understand that social hierarchy and then see black people defying it, his grandmother, the church deaconesses, the deacons of the church, defying those strictures that were trying to tell us who we were, but that he knew not to be true, to see them defied was a lesson for him in what was possible. And I think the meta picture of that was Vogue. On the one hand, you know, it's, it's kind of another universe. It's not really realistic, but it, it just demonstrates what is possible. And I think that was Andre's biggest message to students at SCAD. He just wanted them to consider what if, and then let them fill in that blank. And thank God he had his grandmother, Lois, because you know you might have a sensitive child, but if there aren't adults or caretakers there to meet that child where there's sensitivity within that vibrational range, it can just be overrun or it can be put down. Andre's mother, for example, never understood him. No. She was embarrassed by his exuberance and by his, his stylistic expression. Whereas his grandmother would say, leave that boy alone, he's fine. Everything Andre did in his grandmother's eyes was fine, was perfect. Indeed, to that point, the designer Mark Jacobs described Andre as an operatic figure. Would you talk about how he presented himself to the world? It was a 360 degree production, Lois. So I think operatic is the <laughs> perfect term. I don't love opera. My little friend Layla Felder will kill me for saying that. She keeps trying to get me on the opera bandwagon, but she's always coaching me on how opera is a combination of fashion, production, lighting, sound, all, everything. And that was Andre. 
Andre didn't just assemble an outfit. There was some historical context that he was referencing. There was conjugation between the socks and the boater hat and the, the waistcoat that he was wearing or the caftan later in life. There was always a story, much the way that an editor puts together a story for the pages of a magazine layout that Andre would convey. And he would take hours putting these stories together. He describes going to Deanna Vreeland later in her life when she was losing her eyesight and he would take him hours to assemble his outfit, Lois. Mm. And Deanna couldn't see, but he could see and he could feel. And it was important to him to present himself, almost like someone would in the court of Louis Says at Versailles. That was Andre. Yeah. In fact, his first break was an unpaid apprenticeship to Deanna Vreeland at the Costume Institute of the Metropolitan Museum of Art. She had been editor-in-chief at Vogue. Mrs. Vreeland reminded him of his grandmother. He felt her unconditional love. What did he learn from Diana Vreeland? I think he learned how to be free, Lois. I think he learned that it was okay to dream and to dream big. I think he learned it was okay to be over the top to be the loudest one in the room, to command attention, and to be worthy of that attention once you commanded it. So you don't just come in you know, looking like firecrackers in the 4th of July, but you have something to say. Andre took great pride in the research he would do before conducting an interview, before showing up at the Costume Institute, for example, and assembling, I think it was a, a metal bikini that Lana Turner wore in, in The Prodigal. I have yes. to go watch that movie. Well, Andre was given a box of basically metal pieces that he assembled and fashioned into the costume. And Deanna Vreeland came through the Costume Institute, saw it, wanted to know who assembled this, had her, one of her minions page Andre to her, to her side. And he went to her office immediately. She said, who are you? And he said, Andre. And she had a big yellow legal tablet. She wrote Andre in big letters. And then she wrote under it, helper. And she said to him, you will be by my side for the entirety of this show. And so that started the beginning of what I can only call a beautiful friendship. They were simpatico. They understood one another. They loved one another. And you're right, Andre describes, he only talks about unconditional love from two people, his grandmother and Mrs. Vreeland. But what's interesting, Lois, and this is kind of bittersweet, I just read Andre's memoir, The Chiffon Trenches, as I was preparing to speak to you today, and he said he can only recall being hugged two times by his grandmother in his whole life. Really? Both times he was very young and he was sick, like with a flu or a very bad cold, and she was nurturing him, and, and that was it. So his upbringing was rather repressed, not physically demonstrative as as we might imagine. But he felt her unconditional love. Oh, he understood yes. that. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And you hear this from a lot of people who migrate to the United States. You know, they say, my parents never say I love me, but they show me physically. Ocean Vuong, the novelist, has talked about this. My mother physically shows me through her body language, through the way that she cooks for me, that she loves me. But the words will never escape her lips, and that's okay. So that's a cultural thing. But I was, I was really shocked to hear that. Indeed. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes speaking with writer and arts ATL editor Gail O'Neill about the life and legacy of Andre Leon Talley. Andre worked at Andy Warhol's 
interview at Women's Wear Daily and the New York Times before he took the job of fashion news director at Vogue in 1983. Five years later, Anna Wintour named him creative director, and he continued to work at Vogue until 2013. It was quite a run. Gail, one of his most striking pieces was actually created for Vanity Fair. It was Scarlet in the Hood in 1996. What was the impact of that feature? (laughs) And would you describe it, please? Okay. Andre decided he would turn the narrative of Gone with the Wind on its head by having Naomi Campbell play the part, Naomi Campbell, an Afro-British model. She would play the part of Scarlett O'Hara and these luminaries of the fashion world, all white men, Gianfranco Ferre, Galliano, Marc Jacobs, uh, Manolo Blahnik would play the, the helpers, the gardener, the, you know, they would play the mammy characters. Karl Lagerfeld shot the entire spread and it was beautiful. It was laugh out loud. And Andre, you know, Andre was never the type, Lois, and he, he owns this in his memoir. He said, I was never the type to bang the drum for racial justice. And I would never say to Karl Lagerfeld, for example, if I saw a collection where there was not one person of color on the runway, I wouldn't say, Carl, what's up with that? Instead, I might say, Carl, have you thought about putting Naomi in this particular dress? She would be amazing. Or have you thought about using Rashimba for your ad when you advertise in, in the Vogue September issue? And so he was very subversive in being an advocate for equality. And I think that's fine, Lois. You know, we live in an era now where we expect people to be revolutionaries and poets and upstanding citizens and artists and the whole and and you know and politicians and we're not you know most people are really great at one thing andre was great at identifying beauty and elevating beauty and so i think it's fine that he also i understand coming from where he did that he just was not in a position to be the fierce advocate that he could be later in life for for racial equality in fashion beth ann hardison is the person who deserves all the acclaim in that regard in fashion In fact, the word authentic is used so much lately, Gail. I think one of the most impressive attributes of Andre Leontelli was the pride he took in being black, his love of family, church, and his southern upbringing, along with his equal embrace of French language, literature, history, and art— He brought aspects of African design to some of the feature spreads he styled as well. It seems he was fully confident and understood his worth, yet it must have been daunting to be the only black person taking his place in the front row with the other renowned journalists at those fashion shows you mentioned. In the documentary, The Gospel According to Andre, Tally says, you don't get up and say, look, I'm black and I'm proud. You just do it, and it impacts the culture. So, Gail, how would you assess his representation and impact on the culture? Andre represents the best of old school civil rights, 
tenacity. There's just this tensile strength, Lois, that I shall not be moved, that your opinion of me cannot impact me because I don't even respect you enough to have that influence the way that I think of myself. And that was Andre. He knew who he was. That was enough for him. He understood the incivility of people who could be casually and viciously racist without even knowing what they were doing. And he would suffer those slings and arrows. He would swallow it. As he put it, I would internalize it and I would just stew on it. But I knew if I brought it up, it could be a career killer. One time he was in a public meeting at, he was at Women's Wear Daily in, in Paris and his boss came over from New York for this meeting and said in front of a room of Andre's colleagues, I hear you're in and out of the beds of every designer in Paris. So he was implying that, as Andre put it, that I was this big black buck, you know, mm. just there for my sexuality. That was my only value. And Andre was so deeply wounded by those words that he quietly stood up, left the room, he went to the Church of the Madeleine in Paris. He sat for two hours in quiet contemplation and then went back to his boss at Women's Wear Daily and resigned the position. He couldn't suffer that assault on his dignity. So on the one hand, Andre was extremely pragmatic. He knew when to keep silent. When the cut was deep enough, he would just extricate himself from that pool. And remarkably, Lois, he had staying power. I don't know how he did it over all those years, but somehow he managed to remain relevant for 30 years, which is uh, beyond a lifetime in the world of fashion. Oh, I can imagine. In the documentary, he also says, you have to be what you are representing. He said, just the name, Vogue, Vogue, Vogue. <laughs> he, he was not about to be anything but elegant or fashionable, making a statement. Gail, there are many people who think of fashion as frivolous and haute couture high fashion as prohibitively expensive, sometimes ridiculous in appearance. How do you defend fashion to those who see it as superficial and snobbish? Well, I would have to say to those who see it as superficial and snobbish, I completely understand why you feel that way. The way fashion is marketed, the way that we elevate celebrity over things that really are valued, you know, that we should value lowest, like artistry, an understanding of a woman's body and what she needs to feel beautiful and confident when she leaves a room or a man, you know, whomever you're designing for, for respect for the client. Those things all kind of go by the wayside. And Vogue is partly responsible for that. You know, they celebrate the rich and the famous. And that is very, very superficial. But when you go to the atelier of somebody, like, let's say, Azadina Laya, and you see the hard work that this man puts into every seam, every bias cut, and the way that something is draped. There is real genius there. But the genius can't always be celebrated because it, it requires too much of the journalist to tell that story. And we know that in journalism, a lot of times, the soundbite is what makes it to the front pages. And Beyonce wearing a gown is more important than the person who designed the gown and what, how they conceptualized it and how they structured that gown. And so the real story, the real genius of the people who are building these gowns from the bottom up, and I'm talking about not just the couturiers, but the women who are expert lace makers or embroiderers or who know how to, to stitch buttonholes, these are the stories that need to be told, but we're a very superficial public too. 
We want the quick hits. We want the razzle-dazzle. And so that's what we get. We get the superficiality and the fluff. Now, I'd say the beauty of fashion, if you can put it in context, and this is really meant for the Instagram generation because there's so much abuse around Instagram these days where young girls look at images and instead of being inspired by what they see, they want to have what they see and be what they see. And it has nothing to, it's completely misaligned with who they are. First of all, it's a fabrication. It's there for entertainment. So you cannot be those things. The models in those pictures are not really those things. So that's a real problem. I think if we can use fashion as something to elevate our consciousness and ask ourselves, what if? What if today I go out and I wear a poppy red scarf just because it's a gloomy day and that will brighten my spirit and brighten the, the face of the person who's approaching me on the street? What if, I mean, just what if? It can be, and it can be whatever your choice is. And I think that's what Andre and that's what fashion can give to us if we do not allow it to dictate to us who and what we should be and whether or not we have value. Writer and arts ATL editor Gail O'Neill. If you are just joining us, Gail and I have been speaking about the life and legacy of pioneering Vogue magazine editor Andre Leon Talley. Talley passed away recently at the age of 73. In a moment, we'll listen back to my 2018 interview with Kate Novak, director of the documentary The Gospel According to Andre, amplifying Atlanta. This is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Great to have you along. The larger-than-life Vogue magazine editor Andre Leontale passed away recently at the age of 73. In 2018, I spoke with the director, Kate Novak, about her film, The Gospel According to Andre. The documentary explores the life and career of Tally, from his childhood in the segregated South to his iconic barrier-breaking work at Women's Wear Daily, Interview, and Vogue. Novak first explained why she wanted to make the film. 
I mean, I had seen Andre in fashion documentaries for probably about 25 years. I, I saw the movie Unzipped in 1995, and he always is in these over-the-top scene-stealing roles, mm-hmm. but he's always in the position of commenting on other people, always sort of the supporting actor. And he has such an interesting and, I think, meaningful story as the first African-American man, really, in his level in the fashion industry that I thought his story really deserved to be told and that he was a character that was made for cinema. My job is to make sure that Vogue has the first entree into every door of every important house, be it a fashion house or the house of someone who has a great art collection, to be the first to get Madonna on the cover of Vogue. Oh, yes. Larger than life doesn't overstate Andre Leon Talley. Was it um, Mark Jacobs in your film who described him as operatic? It, it was. I mean, he's totally operatic. It's not just it's his size. He's six and a half feet tall. He wears these caftans. But it's also his sort of I always think of his personality as kind of a volcanic. He has this kind of eruption of references and emotions around things that many of us think of as small and maybe incidental, but he's so moved by beauty, Um, you know, and not just fashion, but references from literature and film and music. So he's he really, like you said, he's larger than life in many ways. Would you talk about his early life? Absolutely. So the first time that I met Andre, I pitched the idea of a movie to him. And the idea really was I wanted to look at how his experience as a boy and the memories from childhood had sustained him in his adult life. And the very first thing that he said to me was, if we do this, I have to take you behind my childhood church in Durham, North Carolina, my Baptist church. I just remember going to church was the most important thing in life, getting up and getting dressed to go to church on Sunday. My grandmother got up. She made a pan of biscuits for me. I'd eat the whole pan of biscuits myself. Get dressed, get in the car, then go to church. Amidst the Jim Crow South, the black church was the only place, really, in which African-American life and African-American identity was affirmed and valued. Um, So the idea really always was it was a little bit less about the fabulous closets full of Hermes boxes, which he does also have, and more about his experience growing up in the Jim Crow South. He was born in 1948, um, raised by his grandmother in a very loving home. She was a maid at Duke University. She cleaned the boys' dormitories. Um, And he always talks about cleanliness being close to godliness. 
Um, she kept a very clean home. And I think from a very early age, luxury for Andre was really connected to care. It was the biscuits that she would bake for him on Sunday. It was the beautiful clothes that she and his relatives wore to church on Sunday. Um, So I think luxury and care and maintenance are very rooted in Andre's autobiography and his history. And in particular, his history as an African-American man in America. Yeah, you make the point in the film that church was the only place where African-American identity and life was affirmed and valued during the time when he was growing up. How did the church shape Andre's interests and worldview? I think that it gave him a sense of strength and a sense that he could go and he could be what he wanted to be and a feeling of unconditional love. Um, It's interesting also that when we found the footage, in, in the movie you see women from, you know, the 50s and the 60s at church in their quote-unquote Sunday best. Um, And it's amazing to see the procession out of church because it looks just like a fashion show. Yes. Um, Yeah. (laughs) So I I think it's also, while it gave Andre a feeling of strength, I think he also in the film tells a story that is very sad and emotional about going to church with his mother. And he was wearing this beautiful coat that he had found at a thrift store. Um, And his mother turned to him. He had a very complicated relationship with his mother. And she said to him, stand back, hang back. I can't walk into church with you in that phantom of the opera jacket. So there was also sort of these ideas around respectability that Andre pushed up against, Mm -hmm. um, you know, which had to do with his sexuality and his gender identity that maybe didn't have a place within the black church where he grew up. And I think that that also stayed with him in his adult life. So it's complicated. Growing up in the Jim Crow South was a terrible time for people with humble aspirations. As a teenager in segregated Durham, what role did fashion play for the young Andre? He would walk to the Duke campus, and um, there's a very moving story you depict in the film. So Andre was an only child raised by his grandmother, and he had friends, but in many ways I think he was alone and loved fashion. Um, And he discovered Vogue magazine when he was about 12 years old at the Durham Public Library. And every Sunday after church, he would walk across the Duke campus and go to the newsstand to buy his issue of Vogue. It came out actually every two weeks then. Every Sunday after church, I'd have to go across town to the Duke East Campus to the magazine stand to get the Vogues. And one Sunday, I was going across the railroad tracks, and people threw rocks at me from a car. I wasn't wearing capes or anything. I was walking around in normal, like a sweater, like a ski sweater or something. And I thought that this was a bunch of white boys, a Duke, decided to throw rocks at me because I was walking the campus. 
but I was taught to rise above it and to be strong. I went to an all-black high school. And he, it is in many ways, I think, a metaphor for Andre in his adult life when he faced adversity and he faced opposition. He really just pushed on and really was driven by a very deep-seated and emotional love of fashion and of beauty and of style. Yeah, he said that his escape from reality was reading Vogue. What did he see, this rather sheltered, naive young guy in Durham, North Carolina, flipping through Vogue? What did that convey to him? Well, I think importantly, when Andre would flip through Vogue magazine as a boy, he saw black models. He saw Naomi Sims in the pages of Vogue magazine. And I think that it communicated to him, this is a world that he could go and he could work in. Um, You know, I think Vogue was at that time very literary. Um, You know, he would read about when he was a little bit older about Truman Capote's black and white ball. And I think it was a world beyond Durham that, you know, just had this pull for him. Um, You know, Vogue was full of stories. And I think he sort of sees the world in story. And so it was the perfect sort of, you know, I mean, he also read the Bible, but this was his other Bible. (laughs) Well, in addition to being very intelligent, Andre Leontelli was also an excellent student, scholarship to Brown. And um, while he was at Brown, he connected with people in art and design at the Rhode Island School of Design. How did his intellect inform his self-concept and and ultimately his work in fashion, Kate? Yeah, I mean, I'm so happy you brought that up because I think the intellectual side of Andre sometimes gets lost or glossed over in his public persona, um, partly because he's so hilarious and so over the top. But one of the things that I did when I started researching this project was I went to Brown University where he got a master's in French literature, and I asked them for his master's thesis, which he wrote on the representation of African women in the writing of Baudelaire and the painting of Delacroix. So that gives you a little bit of a sense of sort of as, you know, a young man where his head was at. And he, you know, then went to Brown University and right across the street was the Rhode Island School of Design. And he met, you know, sort of these wealthy, white, creative kids from New York City, from New Orleans. And, you know, he had grown up going to a really, really high quality African-American high school. But this was in some ways his first experience in a world that was predominantly white. Um, And he met kids who, you know, he talks about in the film how they would wake up in the morning and drink Bloody Marys, which was something that their parents did. So I think he had to adjust in some ways to a world that was very different. At the same time, whereas in Durham, he had been alone reading Vogue in his room, when he got to Rhode Island, he had a community of people who were equally as passionate about style and about fashion. Um, His friend from college or from graduate school, Reed Evans, talks about 
you know, how they would play dress up in women's clothes on a Saturday night when they had nowhere to go. So I think many things came together there. Um, And he had with him, very importantly, inside of him already, the strength of the church and the unconditional love of his grandmother really, I think, carried him through. At one point, Diana Vreeland, the legendary editor of Vogue, is compared to Andre's grandmother. How were they alike for him? Well, it's funny. Andre really thinks of his grandmother who raised him and Deanna Vreeland as similar, and he talks about that in the film. Um, Andre's idea of luxury, I think we probably... I think many people go into the film thinking that Andre Leontali's idea of luxury is Louis Vuitton trunks and diamond tennis bracelets. He does like those things, but his idea of luxury actually, I think, goes deeper than that. And it has to do with care, care for other people, care for one's belongings. Um, he talks about how Diana Vreeland always cared about the bot- the soles of one's shoes or the lining of a jacket and, you know, how his grandmother would iron his sheets. So in that way, I think they're very similar. Um, they approached the world as in a way that one should care for the people in one's lives and for the belongings in one's lives and for, for the space in which we live. The 1970s seemed to be the ideal time for Andre Leontali to come of age professionally. Would you describe this scene and what part he played in it? So, I mean, I think in a way, Andre is such a force that I think if he had arrived in New York City at any time that he would have made it, um, you know, any time in his lifetime. Um, but he did arrive in New York City in 1974. It's a time when the city was much more affordable. And in some ways, when breaking into the fashion industry, it was sort of more permeable. Um, and, you know, he volunteered at the Metropolitan Museum of Art for Diana Vreeland and made such an impression on her. He had to put together this um, model for a show on Hollywood that she was curating. And he had to uh, piece together like a puzzle, these metal bathing suit pieces onto a model. And the way in which he did it just blew her away. And when she saw it, she said to him, now you will stay by my side. And I think from there, Andre really then had a mentor and he had an ally. And with her help, he got a job at Interview Magazine. And he was so passionate and so knowledgeable already about fashion that I think he just, everyone that he met, he impressed, whether it was Fran Lebowitz, Andy Warhol, Diana Vreeland, that he found this foothold in New York City. And Beth Ann Hardison, who's a good friend of his who was one of the sort of pioneering African-American models, talks in the film about how there was this downtown scene and everyone was different, but Andre was even more different, Mm -hmm. that he had this sense of being an immigrant, an outsider, but he just had this knowledge that he could drop on you. And, you know, he is magnetic, and I think he just was this force. Kate Novak director of The Gospel According to Andre. 
We'll listen back to more of this 2018 conversation about Andre Leontali in just a moment. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. Today we've been celebrating the life of the iconic Vogue magazine editor Andre Leon Talley. Talley died earlier this month at the age of 73. Let's return to my 2018 conversation with director Kate Novak. We've been discussing her documentary, The Gospel According to Andre. Anna Wintour says in the film that Andre was ambivalent talking about race, yet he made some impressive statements through his work. What was Scarlet in the Hood? So Scarlet, yeah, so Scarlet in the Hood was a spread that he did while he was working um, at Vanity Fair when Graydon Carter was the editor. And Andre had the idea to take that story and flip the roles of the blacks and the whites. So you have John Galliano is a servant in the house. Manolo Garden, uh, Manolo Blahnik, sorry, is the gardener. And then Naomi Campbell in this wildly expensive couture dress is Scarlett O'Hara. And, you know, Helmut Newton shot that. Andre Leontali art directed it. And Graydon Carter says in the film that Andre really was the only person who could have come up with that and then orchestrated that shoot. And it really says something about the value of black life um, through the pages of a mainstream American magazine. And, you know, that was in the mid-90s. And in some ways, it was before its time. It was stunning. And it really lands like a film, even though it's in print. I mean, Andre, I think, thinks like a filmmaker in many ways. He's a storyteller. And, you know, it's funny because when I first met with him, he, you know, we had this initial meeting and I wasn't sure if the project was going to proceed. And the next day I got an email from him, you know, addressed to me and my producer, Andrew Rossi, saying, you know, I don't know why I feel very trusting of you both and I want to do this. And from there, the floodgates opened. And one of the first, you know, references that he shared with us were his favorite films, you know, uh, Visconti, um, you know, Betty Davis. So he has so many references from film. And I think all of those really came to bear in his work. And they're in the pages of Vogue and of Vanity Fair and in his mind every day. He never fell in love. Or at least no lasting relationship that he speaks of. Yeah, I mean, that's really one of the saddest moments in the film is when he talks about how he never fell in love. And, you know, I think fashion was sort of his first love and um, took all of his attention and his time. But it, he says it's the great flaw in his life. And I think it's it's a real regret um, 
So, yeah, I, I, I think Andre also has a very sort of 18th century idea of love. It's all about longing. And in some ways, fashion and fashion magazines are about lo- longing and dreaming for a, for a more beautiful existence. So it's in some ways, it was a good fit for him career-wise in terms of his romantic aspirations. But I think that's, that's one of the big sadnesses in his life. Yeah. Oh, but that's a, an interesting take you have on that unrequited aspect, of the, sort of like a poet. Absolutely. Um, no, I think that it's that idea of longing, um, you know, which, you know, is is a can be a beautiful sort of exquisite feeling. But ultimately, as human beings, we still have that need for a connection. So yeah. I think that that's it's a sad moment in the film. Kate, I was hoping you'd talk about the 2016 election and how you used it within this film. Absolutely. So we began filming with Andre in the late summer of 2016, you know, which really meant that we were filming with him during the heat of the, um, you know, Trump-Clinton campaign. And, you know, I always, I view Andre's story as an American success story. It really is the story of an African-American man's success in America with all of the difficulties that he faced. And as we were filming, he spoke a lot about how far we had come as a country since he was a boy living in Durham under Jim Crow with his grandmother. And, you know, in a very sort of um, a uplifting way, you know, look at the progress that we've made. At the same time as the election and, or as the campaign unfolded, it was hard to deny that perhaps the progress that he had seen and many of us had seen wasn't what we thought that it was. We hadn't come as far as we thought. Ugly and dirty. So, you know, although I am from the South and I really realized that we had made advances by the time I got to Vogue, there were still some moments like that. They used to call me Queen Kong. A woman in Saint Laurent who used to call me Queen Kong. I was like an ape. King Kong, Queen Kong. They were saying I was a gay ape, Queen Kong. People always say, how do you do it? How have you put up with this world for so long? I say, through my faith and my ancestors, you know? They put up with slavery for so long. Lynching. Voter suppression. Beatings. When you see these things, when I was growing up, when you see these pictures on the television, they were amazing to me. Dogs being let out on people, fire hoses, white cops kicking women. It all impacted me, too. But I had to move on. I had to get on with my career. So, you know, in some ways it was this rude awakening. And what we were seeing on the national political stage was very different from his personal narrative. And... Um, you know, the the two stories sort of collided, the personal and the political. And in some ways, I think that the election that we see unfold in the film and the ultimately Trump's um, victory, to me, makes Andre's story seem more urgent. <laughs> Do you think that ultimately... Andre Leontali sees the story of his career 
as having a happy ending? I think he does. I think he sees his career as a success. Um, I think if he thinks back over his life, you know, to that moment where he saw Vogue magazine at, you know, the public library in Durham, to what he considers the pinnacle of his career, which was writing the first Michelle Obama cover story in 2009. I think it's hard to say that that wasn't a success. Um, Was it perfect? Was it without despair? No. But I think his trajectory in fashion is a success story, and I think that he views it that way. Kate Novak director of the 2018 documentary, The Gospel According to Andre, the pioneering Vogue magazine editor and fashion icon, passed away earlier this month at the age of 73. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Monday at 11 a.m., Pianist, composer, and writer Stephen Huff joins us to talk about his upcoming performance with the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra and his new recording of Chopin Nocturnes. Plus, we'll hear from the new artistic director of Dad's Garage, Tim Stoltenberg. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you will find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. Our theme music is the first time written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band, courtesy of Hot Shoe Records. City Light's senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and I would absolutely love it if you'd follow me on Twitter, at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thank you for listening to W-A-B-E at Latin. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.